Welcome to the second episode of the Beyond Devices podcast. I'm Jan Dawson and my co-host is Aaron Miller. This week we'll be mostly talking about Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, which uh, started earlier this week on Monday with a keynote where they made lots of announcements. We'll be talking mostly today about those announcements. We'll save some of them for next week's episode. But in the middle of this week's episode, we'll also be introing a new feature, which we call Question of the Week, uh, which is where we'll tackle a question that you might have as a listener and try to break it down a little bit, do some research and help to answer that question. Specifically this week we'll be talking about Apple's open sourcing of Swift uh, and the code associated with that, which was the announcement that seemed to get the most favorable reaction from developers this week. So around the middle of this episode we'll be talking about that. One other quick note before we start, uh, I unfortunately had a microphone issue at my end, so you'll notice that the audio on my end is not great this week and may uh, go up and down a little bit during the course of the episode. I apologize for that and hopefully it's an issue that we'll have sorted out by next week. Um, so first of all, we'll talk about our general impressions. And I, I was at the keynote, uh, this was the second time I've attended WWDC. I was there as a guest and I'm grateful to be there. It always is a, a different environment to be there in person. And, uh, it's always a funny experience too because you spend a couple of hours getting ready and waiting and, and milling around with other attendees and, and specifically the group I tend to be with, it's reporters, uh, and there's a lot of waiting involved and then you get into the keynote and there's two hours of frantic activity trying to take notes and understand what's going on and I try to keep up with Twitter and so on as well and then in the two hours afterwards it's again talking to reporters, it's trying to get stuff out to my clients who are asking about the impact on them and so on and uh, so it, it tends to be a very busy day in that sense once it gets kicked off. Uh, right. but there was a lot to take in, a lot of announcements. I'll I'll tell you, and I don't know how you do it during those two hours. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I remember at the end of the keynote, you were <clears throat> tweeting that you had some press comments ready for, ready to go. And mm -hmm. I was like, how do you pay attention and write all that stuff and have it all ready? So, yeah. Yeah. One of, my secrets, That's a lot of work. one of my secrets is to, to write during the videos. Um, so... You know, when their video is up, when they did the um, they did the app developer video, they did um, one about music and the music app and Beats One specifically. So they had these various video segments that weren't so much announcements per se. So I didn't have to take notes quite as furiously during those videos, and so that gave me some time to start writing up some of my thoughts. But yeah, it's 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 definitely hectic, and I'm always glad when it's when it dies down that afternoon so that I can feel like I'm getting back to normal again. My my heart rate goes back to normal. I should check actually on my activity app to see what happened to my heart rate. During in that time but uh, yeah it's no always kidding. busy what do you think of the opener video this year um, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's interesting because I think Apple treats these developer events very differently from the way it treats other events and, you know, the Craig Frederigi shtick and the dad jokes and everything else. And, and I felt like the video was kind of in keeping with that. It was sort of nerdy and goofy and it was fun. Definitely a bit of a departure for what I've seen the last couple of years at least. Um, you know, lots of stars in there as well, kind of comedians and that kind of thing and, uh, and some fun. Um, so it's kind of a pretty lighthearted way to kick it off. And I felt like that was sort of it sort of set the tone for the event and you know it's, it's really felt like the last two or three big Apple events the executives are really kind of hitting their stride in terms of feeling comfortable feeling really confident and bullish about what they have to announce and so on and I, I felt like that that kind of fit with the mood what what was your take Aaron? Yeah I mean I really enjoyed it I thought it was hilarious um, I, re I read one commenter who was kind of complaining about it who said something to the effect of you know Steve Jobs gave us the 1984 commercial and now Tim Cook is giving us this and I just kind of rolled my eyes at that comment. You know, the truth is WWDC has had sort of funny intros like this before. You know, during the PC Mac campaign, they had John Hodgman come on and do custom 
video for developers to open up the conference. And this one, the thing that kind of blew me away on this one was the production value. I mean, that was an expensive yes. intro yep. to, and, and, it, and it's true that they have kind of a, you know, pretty vast audience for those that are watching online, but I mean, really it was tailored to the audience in the room. And that was, that's a lot of money to spend on that. I think it, <laughs> I think it speaks actually to the way, to the culture Apple's trying to develop you know, amongst us developers is, is this, you know, this sort of like, it's, it's sort of like an unspoken way of saying, we think you guys are awesome. We think, you know, we want to pay attention to you. We want to show you that, you know, we love what you do. And I, I think that video was, you know, it, it was, it was almost like a love letter to them. You know what I mean? Like it was something to tell developers how great Apple thinks they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of reinforced later on with the other video that started out with um, Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about the impact of apps and the significance right. of it and everything else. Of course, you yeah, know, developers so. won't always agree that it's it's always a loving relationship with Apple, especially when the right. app store gets mm -hmm. involved. But, but you know, I, I thought that was a really cool, I, I, it just came across as a gesture to developers to open with that yeah. video. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so general impressions, kind of iOS and OS 10. I mean, we kind of knew ahead of time, we talked about this last week, this was going to be you know, a stability release. And the, the naming of OS 10 El Capitan really kind of reinforces that. It's kind of the closest thing to a mountain lion or uh, whatever that's been used in the past from a naming perspective in that you know, El Capitan is part of Yosemite National Park. Um, it's not this completely different animal. It's, it's you know, the same thing but better in, in some ways. And you know, no huge visual changes this time around, you know, subtle visual cues, obviously a new system font that's shared with iOS, um, you know, a lot of sort of stability and polish and, and little incremental improvements here and there. And with iOS, kind of much the same thing there. Uh, obviously, a couple of new apps coming in iOS over the next few months, but, um, you know, for the most part, more polish, more intelligence throughout the two uh, operating systems as well. Uh, and we'll talk a bit more about the, the search API later, but with Siri and so on, uh, more of that kind of thing as well. Any sort of general thoughts from you, Aaron? Uh, I mean, yeah, there were a couple of things. I, I was excited about the full screen, split screen feature that they've added. I, I mean, it's mostly, so I have a MacBook Pro that I use, you know, for work, but when I'm at my desk, I plug it into a Thunderbolt display. And, and to be honest, that Thunderbolt display is bigger than I need for just one app if it goes full screen. You know, it's, it, I, I'm not usually, I do mostly tech stuff. I, you know, for classes that I teach, I'll use Keynote. But um, when I'm bringing apps into full screen, it's going to be really nice to essentially have two full screen apps side by side. I, I think that's a little convenience. That's really cool. I know it's not original to Apple, but it, it's it's definitely welcome. Um, I think probably of all the OS ten announcements that seem to be most important, I think the Metal announcement seemed like a really big deal. I mean, the app that, you know, the Mac has never really been known as, as a graphics powerhouse. And, uh, it, you know, the gaming industry is, it, you know, PC gaming is entirely in Windows. It's, you know, the Mac sort of tends to get, uh, saying takeable scraps is probably a little unkind, but, it, but it's the essence of it, you know, delayed releases, uh, you know, Aspire brings out, you know, basically converted Windows games that don't always have the same functionality. They're sometimes slower, buggier. Um, I, I think Metal is going to be really interesting and, and not necessarily because of the gaming, you know, even though they had Epic up on stage and showed off their new game and everything. I think what made it really interesting is actually that Adobe and Autodesk were both listed as, as uh, you know, companies that were going to be taking advantage of Metal. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that actually, you know, there's two sides to that, right? So the gaming, as you say, you know, Mac's always been kind of the second-class citizen there. But with Adobe, obviously, there are lots of creatives out there using, whether it's Photoshop or After Effects or whatever it might be from the Adobe suite. You know, that's something that people already use Macs for and where Metal could make a really meaningful difference to the performance of those apps they're already using. Yeah, well, and that and, and you know, the truth is over the past 10 years or so, Adobe's been getting pretty you know, consistently criticized by Mac users for letting letting stuff slip on the Mac. You know, they, I, I think Adobe just found developing on the PC, you know, on Windows easier in some respects. Uh, it sounds like this is going to be a big and encouraging difference. Um, you know, in the AutoCAD world, um, the Mac is also still a second-class citizen. And uh, I think Autodesk coming up to Metal might help them want to put more features out on the Mac. Um, and that's obviously a big deal for engineers, um, and and I, I think that's an area where the Mac has a, an opportunity to break in. If Metal turns out to be a big deal, which I guess I don't, I don't know enough of the technical details to know if it will, but it, it definitely sounded interesting. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, any other kind of general impressions? iOS. Um, you know, there's the new Siri stuff, some of which obviously mirrored what uh, Google had announced two weeks before. At, I.O. in terms of, you know, Google Now on Tap has this sort of parallel now in the sort of contextual version of Siri. Yeah, you know, so the, the intelligence stuff that's being built into Siri, it, it's, it, the whole concept is really exciting and compelling. I, I, I'm not, like, overwhelmed by any of the specific examples Apple has given thus far. So I think, if anything, it's more just indicating an interesting direction. I mean, because really, if you look at the specifics of the intelligence stuff, it's it's that Siri, you know, your your, your iPhone will automatically add appointments to your calendar for you. Um, I know some people who would actually get annoyed by that. Um, right. You know, there's the whole, I, I thought the one thing that was cool is when you get a phone call, it'll look at, you know, it, I assume it's sort of like scans your emails as they come in and adds numbers to a mm-hmm. database and then Siri, you know, when you have a phone call coming in, your phone says, hey, maybe it's from this person. I, I think that's really cool. Um, you know, I'll occasionally get phone calls uh, from students, for example, who have sent me emails before, and if they've ever put their phone number in, like, a signature line, then I have a better chance of knowing who it is that's calling. Um, right. I think that's neat. But it, but there are all these sort of little things. Altogether, they didn't really, like, amaze me, overwhelm me, but I am excited that Apple's taking it all in that direction because that's uh, a new level of usefulness that you know iPhone users don't really have unless you're using Google now they don't really have been able to take advantage of it so right right absolutely yeah I mean the, the mail contact the calendar invites and mail and stuff that's a feature you can turn off in the settings so you know if that does bug people I guess they can turn it off I, I found the the example that was used on stage about the, the text message, I think Craig Fagarigi kind of demonstrated getting a text message from Phil Schiller asking about a karaoke machine and sort of said, remind me about this later. And yet it felt yeah. a bit kludgy and that it kind of basically pasted the entire text into the subject line of a new reminder, which felt kind of like that wouldn't actually be the most useful thing. You kind of want to take the, the verb out of the, the text message specifically and put that in there or something like that. So it feels like there's room for improvement there. Um, and I, I st- I'm still going to try to test it in some other apps as well to see how it works there. But um, it's a good start, I feel like. And it, I think it's a demonstration of something I talked about in a piece last week, which was I think Apple can build personalized services without having to invade your privacy. And I think there was a good evidence that that's the case. 
and some of the announcements they made here. But um, it still feels like there's a lot further that they could go with some of this stuff. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's all coming. I, 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 have you installed either beta yet? I have, yeah. So I have, I have the developer versions on. So I have my Mac Pro. That's my main work machine. And I've installed El Capitan on that. And then I have uh, iOS 9 running on an iPhone 6 Plus here that I've been using yeah, last night and today. Um, both remarkably stable, actually, um, which is good. Uh, you know, compared to some of the early developer versions last time around, which I had a hard time with. Um, some nice stuff that uh, Siri seemed to take a while to kind of wake up to some of the, the queries that I was asking it. But you know, uh, both Spotlight um, and uh, on both OSs is really nice in terms of being able to type in new things and have stuff pop up right away. It doesn't always work perfectly first time had some stuff where I was typing stuff in and it was just showing me files that were vaguely relevant rather than what I was really looking for. Um, but it seems to be getting better, so maybe it was just kind of a little sluggish to get going for whatever reason. Maybe the database behind it hadn't quite populated yet. But, sure. um, but yeah, no, it's been, it's been remarkably good so far. I mean, the, the news app isn't there yet in iOS, so I haven't been able to try that or anything. And obviously, music's not coming until the end of the month. So you know, those things aren't there yet. But uh, you know, on the whole, it feels like a nice sort of incremental improvement in both both places. I noticed there's a new spinning beach ball uh, in OS X, a slightly sort of jazzed up version of the spinning beach ball, no which kidding. is quite fun. Uh, have you, what happened to the newsstand app? Is it gone in this? It's, new it's gone. It's gone. So where I, where I had newsstand before, I now have a folder called newsstand that has the newsstand apps in it. Okay. Um, but you know, newsstand as an app icon doesn't exist anymore. Um, it seems to have disappeared. Um, and, and you know the news app should be coming. I don't see it yet, so um, I imagine that's coming in the next few weeks. But, but yeah, that doesn't seem to be there yet. But yeah, in general, everything looks really good. PDF. I opened an enormous PDF on OS 10 earlier because that was one of the things they talked about, and that seemed to be very smooth, very quick. You know, I could scroll through it without any problems at all. Um, so that was a kind of a good sign. You know, the mail app seems to be behaving itself quite well so far, and some fun new types of searches that you can do in there now too, which is good. So yeah, I just barely started playing with both of them, but uh, but they look pretty promising so far. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I signed up for the public beta for, for both of those. I, last year, I kind of got burned by installing stuff a little earlier <laughs> than I should have, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I've decided to try to be more patient. But I will be running the betas next month when they release yeah. them. So. Yeah, no, that'll, that'll be good. I mean, I, I, I took a risk last year, too, and the, the initial experience was poor with OS X, and it, it got better with the second version that I installed. and. I figured it was worth taking the risk on at least one device in each case. And so far, it's been OK. It's been a bit glitchy with phone calls and messages on, on the iPhone 6 Plus so far. But I, I can't tell if that's just general glitchiness or if it's iOS 9 related. But we'll see how that pans out over time. Yeah. So let's move on to our question of the week. As we mentioned at the beginning, this is a new feature that we're going to do every week where we're going to take a question that we think at least some of our listeners might have and do a deep dive into it in terms of explaining the background behind it, why it's significant, and so on. Um, this time around, we're, t we're focusing on the open sourcing of Swift, which you know, both in the room and it sounds like, Aaron, from your experience watching the stream, was the biggest kind of applause line of the day. Um, and although some of our listeners are undoubtedly developers or at least very familiar with development, we figure at least some of them won't be. Um, and so this week, Aaron spent some time d digging into this topic and doing some research on it. And Aaron, we mentioned this last week, but Aaron's a business school professor. He has a research background. I'm obviously an analyst. I have a research background as well. So this is something we'll be doing every week where we'll either use existing knowledge that we have or, or do some additional research to really dig into a topic. And then mid-episode, we'll kind of do this question of the week segment. So this week, Aaron, as I say, has been doing the research. So I'll, I'll uh, let Aaron talk a little bit about what he's learned. 
Yeah, so uh, it, it, I guess as we're kind of finding our audience, we'll have a better sense of how of how basic to make things. I, I'm going to approach this the way I would with a coworker. So somebody else who's an Apple follower who sort of tuned in on the keynote, um, I was talking to him about the open sourcing of Swift, and his reaction was essentially this. He said, you know, I, I got excited because I heard everybody get excited, and then I realized I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> and so based on that premise, I'm going to kind of build from there. Um, you know, the whole concept of open source, if you're not familiar with it, is it, it all essentially comes down to copyright law and most, and sometimes the patent law. But, but essentially the idea is that whenever you write something, you own the copyright in it, meaning the exclusive right to control the thing that you've written. And that's true for computer code as well, um, meaning that somebody else can't make a copy of it without your permission. You know, often people sell the things that they've written, like a software program is copyrighted, and so people sell software. Um, the other aspect of copyright law that matters is that uh, it also gives you control over derivative works. Um, I, I remember when I was in law school, there's a famous case you learn where uh, somebody made a, wanted to make a Rocky movie, um, but Sylvester Stallone was the original creator of Rocky. And even though this is, would be a new movie with Rocky as a character, uh, the guy wasn't able to make it because uh, Sylvester Stallone owned the original copyright. Um, and therefore, any derivative works, is what they're called, uh, had to be approved by Sylvester Stallone. Now, when it comes to open source, uh, there's a lot of nuance to what open source means, but really you can boil it down to two things. Uh, when you open source something, you essentially make it so that people, other people can make copies of your computer code without having to pay you for it. That's the first thing. The second is that they, you also often will allow them to make adaptations or derivative works without requiring your approval at a time. In fact, in, in the software world, they refer to this difference as free as in beer. That's where you, know, you don't have to pay to use the code or free as in speech meaning you have the right to take the code and make changes to it, adapt it, and so forth. How this works in detail depends on the specific copyright license that the creator grants, and there are a lot of different kinds of copyright licenses in the open source world. Um, where I understood open source uh, coming into the keynote was in software applications, right? The idea is that you can download source code from a website, compile the code on your computer, and run the software on your computer without having to pay the, per the original creator for it. So, so where I got confused is where programming languages enter in. Um, because it didn't make sense to me how a language could be open source and why that matters. Um, and so to, uh, so an example of languages, JavaScript is a famous open source language. It's used on a lot of web pages. C-sharp is a famous closed source language created by Microsoft for programming Windows applications. Um, to, to better understand what it means for a, for a programming language to be open source, um, I talked with Farshad Nayeri. He's the developer behind Pixa's uh, Perspective app. So uh, Perspective is this iOS app used for presenting data in a story forum, a video forum. He does this in partnership with Horace Didius, a well-known industry analyst. I suspect a lot of your, a lot of the listeners will know who he is. Um, anyway, uh, Farshad has a, has decades of development experience. In fact, you're the one who reached out to him on Twitter. Uh, you know, reached out on Twitter and well, yeah. you reached out on Twitter and he replied saying he'd be happy to answer questions. Um, he was a great guy to talk to, not just because of his development experience generally, but he's also had time working on, on developing a, a computer language specifically. So he really knew his stuff, and on top of that, he was just a really nice guy um, who took some time to explain a lot of this stuff to me. So 
So when it comes to open sourcing a computer language, it comes down to what's in a, in a language. Uh, computer languages have a lot to them. Like, you know, it, what I thought of was, well, there's the basic syntax, right? I mean, there's a code you type, but, but that code derives from things from like a library, for example. And so languages generally come with libraries and compilers. Uh, libraries contain everything from the most basic functionality of the language to... Uh, uh, to pre-written chunks of code for specific tasks that help save programmers time. So I might tap in, if I'm programming in a language, I might tap into a library somebody's created to save me the hassle of writing what they've already figured out. Um, compilers are, are essentially programs that take the, the code that I write and convert it into actual software applications that will run on a computer. Um, anyway, so that's all background. And so now it's time to bring this back to Swift. What does it mean for Swift to be open source? Um, Apple's actually already said what they're going to do, um, and they've they've posted uh, an, an article on the developer website blog explaining what's going to happen. Uh, essentially, Apple has told the world that they're going to be making the standard library and the compiler for Swift free to use and also free to adapt. Um, they're also making an open source compiler for Linux, uh, which means that you could actually you could write a program in Swift and it would run on Linux, uh, which is not the case now. You can't do that. Swift the the only compiler right now for Swift compiles for for Mac and iOS apps, and, and so that's that's going to be a big change. Um, we don't know the specifics of the software license yet. I actually reached out to a friend of mine at Apple who works with the Xcode team. Um, I asked him what license. Uh, Apple was going to use. Uh, this was on Monday, right after the keynote. Not only did he say he didn't know the license, but it turned out this was the first he had heard of it. I think that speaks to <laughs> Apple's ability to keep things secret. Um, yeah. That somebody on the Xcode team didn't even know this was happening. Uh, but uh, on the website, Apple said that that the license they create is going to be what's called OSI compliant. OSI stands for the Open Source Initiative. Uh, which is an organization that promotes open source software. They sort of have standards for what they consider to be open source. And Apple's essentially said whatever license that they create and give out later this year is going to be open source, OSI compliant. Um, you know, that's, those are, all that stuff is mostly technical detail. The question is why does this matter, especially for, you know, computer users generally. Like why should, why should a non-programmer care? if uh, Swift is open source. And this is where Farshad's insight was especially helpful. Um, you know, he's, he basically said it this way. He said that um, for a computer language to be generally accepted, to be something that has sort of like a first-class legitimacy to it, um, open sourcing it is a great way to, to go to that end. Um, I think... And if you look at most of the languages that programmers use, they tend to be open source languages. Like I said, with JavaScript, um, Java is mostly, Java, which is a different language, is mostly open source. Um, probably the most prominent closed source language I mentioned is C Sharp, and, and, and that has legitimacy just because Windows is so massive. But uh, this is a chance for Apple to add this sort of like legitimacy to the language, which will hopefully draw more developers. It, what it does, too, and this is a big deal, is it essentially means that people can use Swift to create software for things other than iPhones and Macs. Yeah. And that's where it has yeah. the potential to be a really big deal because <clears throat> without Apple having to approve anything, what's probably, you know, depending on the license, but, but ideally without Apple having to approve anything, what can happen is a, a um, you know, 
like say Facebook could take Swift, they could build Swift into their server software. They could, you know, they could program stuff in their server software for Swift. They could uh, essentially embed Swift into their whole development approach. And if Apple got wiped off of the map someday, if they're, you know, if it, if it all just sort of, if Apple just sort of disappeared, or if Apple, or 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 if um, Apple started being down on us like financially, like any of these sort of worst case scenarios. Uh, Facebook would be fine. They wouldn't have to worry about Apple coming and trying to take Swift away. Uh, you know, they'd have all the resources they need to continue using Swift on their own. And so it adds a layer of security to people that want to use the language for, you know, the stuff that makes the money for their company. Um, and, and it's interesting to think about where this could go. I, I asked Farshad that question, and I'm asking him to speculate, you know. And, and he, he said, you know, that's actually what's really exciting is that we don't know. Like it's really exciting mm -hmm. to think that Swift could go into all kinds of places and and, and in ways that we can't predict now. And so it'd be really interesting. I, I saw one commenter on the internet reference embedded systems, for example, and how Swift could be actually an interesting or compelling language for that. Uh, I, you know, Swift could be used for programming web pages, um, and. Uh, could potentially be a replacement for JavaScript. Like there are all these different places where Swift could go. Whether or not that's actually the case is going to depend on a couple things. It's going to depend on how flexible Apple is in the license, meaning how you know how how generous are they going to be, and also in the kind of community they can they can build around Swift. Not just yeah. people using Swift for programming, but people actually trying to improve Swift. Um, by you know making the compiler faster and more efficient, or mm -hmm. or adding a new library, a, a new Swift library that everybody can use, and uh, and so I think I think the reason developers erupted um, is because of the legitimacy thing first. Um, you know all, all these programmers that are that have been learning Swift, you know, can can see a bright future for Swift uh, because it's open source. Um, but also just the idea that you know there's there's all this potential out there for all the places that Swift could go being open source. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this fascinating contrast between what Apple's doing here and what Microsoft and Google have announced at their respective developer events over the last few weeks. Because, you know, Microsoft made a huge big deal out of tools that were specifically built by Microsoft to allow developers to port apps from other platforms to Windows. And Google also talked about specific tools that allow developers to create cross-platform applications. Uh, with the major focus being iOS, you know, Apple here is is targeting the same general idea of portability of code across operating systems and so on, but they're doing it in a very kind of hands-off sort of open way, um, you know. And, and in contrast, also to what Apple announced last year. I mean, last year Apple first announced Swift, and it was a big surprise then. But the big criticism was, oh, another closed system, and um, you know, they very quickly turned that around and kind of embraced the open source side of it. And that same blog post that you referenced earlier, they say. You know, source. We, we intend to contribute ports for OS X, iOS, and Linux. But then they also say we think it would be amazing for Swift to be on all your favorite platforms. So whether or, that, or not that means Apple will develop ports for those platforms, or whether they expect other people to do that work, I think that side of it's fascinating, and, and it'll be very interesting to watch what Apple itself does. Um, but it's you know, it's basically letting the community for now do that work rather than creating. Uh, the tools itself. The other thing, and the other component of open source, of course, is the contributions from the community. So, um, you know, and there's always a question about, you know, with open source, 
there have been some examples of open source where it's, it's mostly about, okay, we're sharing our code, but you can't contribute to it. And then there's other examples where it's very much a, a community effort to contribute to it as well. And it, again, in that blog post, it says contributions from the community will be accepted and encouraged. So whether or not they will be incorporated back into the core version of Swift or whether that's just with relation to the ports is not yet clear either. But that's another fascinating angle because Apple's obviously never had that approach to its own software before. So it's another interesting side of this. You know, I think there's an, there, there's a backstory to this that I wish we knew that, that uh, Farshad and I discussed a little bit. Um, mm. You know, he, he, the way he explained it is that the, the people who write programming languages have kind of a save the world mentality to them. Like they, <laughs> they don't care so much about making money. Like they, they do mm. this because the academic pursuit is really engaging. They do it because they want to make life better for developers, which in turn makes life better for consumers. Uh, you know, they, that's that's what sort of drives the people who, generally who, who work on programming languages. Um, Chris Latner, the who's been within Apple, kind of the driving force behind this. Uh, you know, he has a PhD uh, in, and uh, has specialized in, you know, the arcane programming stuff that most people don't understand, but essentially in compilers and making compilers more efficient. And, and, and he kind of, one of the ways he, you know, stood out at Apple, I guess, was, was in his dedication to pushing a lot of this stuff as being open source. And and, and has kind of evangelized some of the stuff that Apple created before Swiss, Swift. Chris Latner kind of evangelized some of the pro open source projects related to compilers that Apple had been working on. Well, then when he turned his attention to creating Swift, and obviously he didn't do it by himself, he had a lot of help from other programmers at Apple. Um, you know, I, I suspect he was pushing uh, for Swift to become open source and kind of had to make a business case for it. Um, you know, he, I think, instinctively, and others like him, I think, would just automatically want to make a language open source. But Apple had obviously invested a lot of resources into creating Swift to begin with. Mm -hmm. I, I think the business case is, 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 it really comes down to this. Um, prior to Swift, everybody is coding in what's called Objective-C. And Objective-C is not a widely loved computing language. It, it's really, uh, it's kind of kludgy and hard to use. And uh, the other problem with Objective-C is nobody else uses it. I mean, it's not used on any other platform, even though it could be. And, uh, and, and so the question is, where do uh, Objective-C developers go? Like, what hap like if, you're, if you're an Objective-C developer and you want to learn a new language, what do you learn? And mm -hmm. any other language they would learn would be worthless to Apple. Right. Right. And so the idea is, well, if Swift is on all these other platforms, that's the language I'm going to learn if I'm that programmer. Sure. And what that yeah. does is that keeps me bought into the Apple ecosystem. And not only that, if, if Swift goes onto other platforms and other programmers are learning Swift, that means they also are coming into the Apple fold. And they, mm -hmm. they have less of a learning curve in order to be able to write software for Apple platforms. And so, so really it's about, it's, it, it creates a future for Apple because it keeps a, 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 it keeps a healthy developer base, right? It keeps people... Mm in the know about how the code is written that goes onto, soft, it goes onto Apple devices, so. Yeah, great. Well, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for taking the time to, to both research it, and, and we thank Farsad Nayeri as well, who helped Aaron out with his research this week, and, uh, and thanks for sharing Aaron here as well for the last few minutes, too. Um, for the last few minutes, we just want to talk about a couple of other things that were talked about at WWDC. Um, next week, on, on the quote of the week, uh, the question of the week, rather, we will um, be talking about something at the opposite end of the spectrum um, in that this week it was highly technical for 
perhaps our less technical listeners next week. Um, the main focus is going to be still WWDC announcements. We're going to cover more of the, the content announcements around music and news and so on. Um, and so the question of the week next week uh, we'll be looking to answer is who are these DJs that Apple has hired away from various other places to run uh, its Beats One radio station? So that's the, the question we'll be tackling. But we invite our, our listeners to submit questions for future episodes that you would like answered. Ultimately, we want to answer questions that you have uh, rather, than, uh, rather than just kind of uh, putting a finger in the air, as it were. Um, so if you have questions, and feel free to submit them, and we'll try to tackle those uh, in future episodes. Um, so as I say, for the last few minutes, we're just going to talk about a few other things that were announced at WDC, specifically the watch OS stuff, uh, and then the search APIs and things related to that and the significance of that as regards Apple's relationship with Google in particular. Um, with watchOS, obviously the major announcement there was the announcement of watchOS 2, um, which has some user-centric features, and, and as an Apple Watch user, they, they look attractive to me. Um, but the, by far, I think the more significant thing is the fact that um, there's now a, an SDK for the watchOS, um, and that's now Apple's third major platform in its own right, rather than just being an extension of iOS, uh, as it has been with WatchKit. Um, and uh, so developers will be able to create apps that run natively on the watch, that will be able to tap into the specific hardware features, including sensors, the microphone, the speaker, um, and so on in the watch, and then specific software features as well um, that will allow them to create self-contained apps that can run on the watch. And I think that's huge because third-party apps so far on the watch, there are one or two really good examples of things that work really well and seem well thought through, but the vast majority of what's there just doesn't feel quite right yet. And it's only a fairly small number, it's about 4,000 apps, you know, compared to 1.5 million in the iOS app store today. So, um, you know, I really feel like this will finally create the kinds of apps that will make real use of the Apple Watch hardware and its unique position on people's bodies and so on. Uh, and I've always felt that, that third-party apps will be a big part of the success. Not the initial success, because there are lots of early adopters like me who will just buy these new products just, just to have them and see how they are. Uh, but I think the mainstream success will very much depend on third-party apps creating new and interesting reasons to buy a watch. So. Any thoughts on that one, Aaron? Yeah, you know, the, the general impression I got that was so fascinating to me is that as they were showing a bunch of the refine, refinements in watchOS, um, it was like, it, I, I just got this feeling they're solving a bunch of little problems that relatively few people have actually encountered yet. I mean, so few people, relatively speaking, have a watch. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's not a small number generally, but, it's, but compared to iPhone users or Mac users even, you know, there, aren't, there just aren't that many, uh, you know, Apple Watch owners out there. And it was mm -hmm. so fascinating to watch these, uh, all these little improvements where most people haven't even encountered the problems that are being improved yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like it's, I mean, it's version 2.0, which is crazy to me because, the, you know, it's been out for a couple months and only a handful yeah. of people, yeah. you know, around the country or the world have act actually have a watch. Mm. Um, I think it shows how long and hard Apple's been working on the Apple Watch before yeah. it ever even surfaced. Yeah, I wonder how much of this stuff was actually held back from the original release rather than kind of invented since then, as it were. I mean, it looks like at least a couple of the watch faces were, were there in the early demos back in September and then disappeared in the meantime and now reappeared. Um, so there's some examples of that for sure. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's maybe, what, 5 million, 10 million Apple Watches out there at the most at this point. Um, it's interesting. I am starting to see them more and more on normals, as it were. I mean, obviously, <laughs> WWDC on Monday, there were lots of them there. But, you know, I'm starting to see them just in the neighborhood and at the grocery store or whatever, other people having them. And, 
you know, they do seem to be getting out there finally. But yeah, in the grand scheme of things, there's no beta program or anything like that, you know, that usually contributes a lot of bug reports and stuff like that. This is a lot of, um, you know, Apple employees probably contributing a lot of requests and stuff like that, I would guess. Um, but, you know, it, it, the features they did announce, I, there were several where I was like, oh, thank goodness, that's something I've been wanting. <laughs> you know, whether it's really simple stuff, one example is, you know, we go out for a walk most mornings, and that's kind of my workout a lot of days. And, um, you know, both of us, my wife and I kind of sit there and, and push down the digital crown and say start workout. But it still then requires at least two taps to actually start a workout because you have to specify what kind and your goal and so on. And one of the things they announced was you can now use Siri to give a more detailed set of instructions to start to actually start the workout. You know, so start an outdoor walk with an open calorie goal or whatever. And um, just little things like that. You can tell that there are people actually using them who said, you know what, it would be really nice if it did this. And there were several examples of that. Do you think that um, uh, do you think that workout that Siri command for working out will work? It, because they announced that workouts uh, can now be run entirely by third-party apps, right? I mean, so yeah. So I, yeah. I use RunKeeper <clears throat> with my phone. I really like RunKeeper, and uh, I'm excited because this means I can use a RunKeeper app, which means obviously it mm. also plugs into my you know my run history and and uh, and all that stuff. Uh, I'm curious if the Siri functionality will work for third-party apps as well. I'm kind of guessing it won't because... Yes, it won't in that level of detail. I mean, yeah. You can already say, you know, open app X or whatever, and that works fine. But I'm guessing... Well, it's interesting because they've now got some, some APIs and things that um, may eventually enable that kind of stuff with a deep linking and that kind of thing. But um, I'm guessing for now it'll just be, you know, open the RunKeeper app and then you still have to manually start it. Like an animal. But it's okay. <laughs> It'll have to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing we wanted to talk about was the search APIs that were announced. And again, it was interesting. I was at IO two weeks ago, and then WWDC this week. And you know, some similarities in terms of um, app indexing, which is what uh, Google calls it, and deep linking, which is the sort of generic terminology for this stuff. But you know, Apple announced some stuff around that too, in terms of um, being able to create um, indexes for your app that allow you know, spotlight search to actually search within your app and then take you directly to the right spot within the app. Um, you know, all of this feels like yet more steps in Apple's effort to insert itself between users and Google's 10 blue links. Right. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I do. In fact, I think that was kind of one of the bigger deals um, of, of the announcements was the deep linking with the search API. Uh, you know, I mean, it comes at, so John Gruber has talked before about how there's a difference between internet and web, right? Web is what we see in browsers and internet. Well, apps can be as much a part of the internet as anything else, and they are. But the, the thing that's significant about that difference is that Google doesn't index apps unless, the, mm -hmm. unless, like you said, the developer is taking a specific effort, you know, to to incorporate Google's deep linking to make that happen. Mm -hmm. The yeah. the reason that matters is because when people are searching, and, and Apple's already starting to move this direction, and, and I'm sure a lot of Apple users maybe haven't noticed or paid attention to the details, but if I type a search into Safari right now, um, you know, it, it's going to take it's going to suggest links that never actually pass through Google. Like it might yeah. take me straight to the Wikipedia page, and Google never even enters into this. Yeah. It, the reason this is such a big deal is because uh, last I checked, Apple was the largest source of mobile ad revenue for Google. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, Google makes more money off of iPhones than it does off of Android phones in terms of ad right. revenue, and right. and that's just because Apple users, you know, iPhone users and iPad users. They use the browser a lot more on their devices, and then the natural result is they're searching on Google, and Google's making money on ad revenue. 
the, the, the reason this matters is because as people move more to apps and away from web, uh, search is going to be a big deal. And for Apple to make search deep link into apps, you know, I can just quickly do a search and not just be ref not just be pointed to the app, but for example, be pointed to a recipe inside the app that's on my phone. And now I'm not Googling for recipes anymore, right? I'm searching on my phone mm -hmm. for a recipe and it's taking me right. to the Chow app or, or you know, right. Paprika or any other sort of cookbook app. And, and that's where it gets to be a really big deal because yeah. essentially cutting off uh, a chunk of Google's largest mobile revenue source. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is it's something I've been wanting to write a blog post about for a while, and I probably still will at some point in the next couple of weeks. But the biggest question to my mind is how far does Apple ultimately go with this? You know, they recently announced that they have an Apple crawler that goes out and crawls websites, which is you know one of the fundamental tasks that you need to do to build a proper search engine. Um, you know, Spotlight. You know, since last year, both on iOS and OS 10 and Safari, you mentioned the sort of Safari element of this now suggests things as you type before you hit enter. And as long as you don't hit enter, as you, as you were saying, it never does actually hit Google. And therefore, you know, if it suggests the Wikipedia page or pops open an app or something like that before you ever hit enter, then Google gets entirely removed from this whole process. Um, and that's obviously potentially extremely damaging for Google from a, from a revenue point of view. But also strategically, they start seeing a lot less of the searches that people actually enter on their phones on uh, iPhones specifically and, and to a lesser extent Macs. Um, and therefore, they don't get that insight either. So they lose the revenue, but they also lose a lot of the insight. Meanwhile, Apple's gaining all that insight. And you know, there is this potential for Apple over time to you know, not just remove Google as the default search engine and replace it with something else, but actually to create its own search engine over time. And um, you know, perhaps there's a good discussion for another time. But you look at DuckDuckGo, which is this alternative search engine that's extremely privacy-focused. And you look at Apple's emphasis on privacy recently. Uh, you look at Google as being one of the main targets of Apple's privacy comments. What if Apple were to either acquire or simply duplicate what DuckDuckGo does, create a search engine that's essentially good enough for the vast majority of queries, but run no advertising, do no targeting, um, you know, very limited personalization based on information that stays on the device, um, suddenly <laughs> can put a huge hole in Google's business. Um, and you know, unlike the Maps transition that happened extremely suddenly, from a user perspective and where it really felt like the, the Maps product that Apple created was half-baked. With this, it feels like this is much more in keeping with Apple's usual product development cycle where they're very incrementally adding little bits of functionality that could eventually build up to a pretty significant shift away from Google. And I'm increasingly convinced that that's a real possibility at some point, whether it's simply switching the default search engine into something else or whether it's actually Apple creating something that takes the place of Google in many respects. Yeah, and you know, I think that search engine could essentially just become Siri, or, or you know, yeah. Siri and yeah, everything and Siri. that mm -hmm. is attached to it. I mean, when we think of search engines, we think of web pages. But, right. you know, it, with the change to apps and how apps are, are definitely, you know, the, the heart of the mobile platforms, um, Siri is that search engine now. And, and yeah. it's getting yeah. further enhanced by this announcement at WWDC. And, and you know, how does you know Google now is I guess the is you know potentially Google's next search engine, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's yeah. replacing the yeah. web, and and I think Apple's really smart strategically to have their own sort of next generation search engine in the form of Siri. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I think we're about 45 minutes, which is about as long as we ever want to go with these episodes. So I think we'll wrap up at this point. But thanks, Aaron, as always, for, for joining me. Thank you for listening to both of us. Uh, I'm Jan Dawson. Aaron Miller is my co-host. Um, we thank you for, for listening. Again, a reminder that next week's episode will be another WWDC-centric episode, but we'll be talking more about the content-related announcements and that our uh, question of the week will talk about the Beats 1 DJ specifically. But a reminder also to submit any questions that you might have that you want us to answer uh, on future episodes. Uh, again, this podcast is available on iTunes, on SoundCloud. You can add it on uh, Overcast, the Overcast podcast app, and, and should be available in all your other favorite podcast apps as well. We, we welcome your feedback uh, on our website at podcast.beyonddevices um, or via Twitter or anywhere else. And thanks again for listening.